It's delightful to be with you this morning. And um, we just want to thank Rita View for their support and encouragement. Uh, for those of you that pray for us, we certainly appreciate it. For those of you that read our prayer and updates, we appreciate that so very much. And we obviously couldn't continue in the ministry without the support that Rita View gives us. So we appreciate that. Uh, just very quickly, one of the ways we're being encouraged at the moment is through our what we call our Butterfly Wishes Community Outreach Ministry. We go out once a week and we give out free clothing items to the needy in Vanier. There's so many needs there. There's opportunity to witness. There's opportunity to build relationships and those sorts of things. I know that some of you have donated items to that ministry. And if you're one of the ones that have donated, we appreciate it uh, so very much. If you want to talk to me more about that after the service, I'd be, I'd be happy uh, to do that. Also, just very quickly, on behalf of uh, DOBC, we, we thank Rita View. We are the hosting assembly this year for the Easter conference. However, we don't have the handicap accessibility at DOBC to be able to host it there. And Rita View has graciously agreed to allow us to be here this year uh, once again at Rita View. So uh, we do thank you. We do thank Rita View uh, for that. We're going to turn then to Matthew 21. Perhaps you're already there. And I do appreciate how Mike tied everything together this morning for us. Our portion today that we're going to be considering is Matthew 21, beginning of verse 28 to Matthew 22:14. Indeed, there are three parables here. We're going to see two in Matthew 21. We're going to look at one in Matthew 22. So what we'll do is we'll begin by reading, starting at verse 28 of Matthew 21. We'll read the first parable and then we're going to jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we'll jump right in. So let's read Matthew 21, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Father in heaven, we pray you'd bless the reading of your word, our time in your word this morning. We ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. So I know you've been working through this, and a lot of you probably read ahead, and you're up to date, and you've, uh, uh, you've prepared yourself for today. But we would just want to remember that this is days, literally days before the cross. The cross is looming for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's been this continual, if you will, discussion and confrontation between him and the uh, religious leaders and we want to just see just a little bit of what introduces these parables because it's important if you go back just a bit in the chapter in verse 12 we see how the lord had gone into the temple and had overturned the tables and righteous anger and you covered that when you were there i know uh, but this was part of what had gone on in the background in verse 14 the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them and they worshiped him for who he was and they understood, they saw him, the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the one who was promised to come. 
and they worshipped him there uh, for who he was. We see the chief priests and the elders. Now, chief priests, uh, chief priests were the elevated members of the Sanhedrin. That's who they were. There were men, there were men that within that council held a particular high position. The elders are believed to be men that would have been part of uh, some of the families, the very prestigious families of the Jews. People that have earned the right to be respected, if you will, amongst the community. These are the ones that are there. And in verse 23, they're challenging his authority. And everything within these parables, I believe, or a lot anyway, hinges on their question. In verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who are you? Who are you to be doing these things? This is really what their, uh, their, their question is. Lord asked them a question in return. You've looked at that concerning the baptism of John. And what is implied here by the Lord asking this question is, you should know who I am. And you should know by what authority I'm doing these things. You should recognize me. That's what's implied within the Lord's answer. And they refuse to answer, of course. They're feeling their answer is going to incriminate them either way. And then uh, in, in Matthew 21, 27, an answer to the Lord's questions, okay, uh, the, the concerning the source of John's baptismal ministry from heaven or from men, the religious leaders say, they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And you ended there last time. I won't tell you by what authority. You're not there. You're just not there. And that's where we pick it up today. So considering the text, we see in this parable, the father, he had two sons, both of whom are asked. Note, they're both asked. Not just one. They're both asked. Only one went, but they were both asked, okay? To go work today in my vineyard. The first son refuses to go. Later he goes. He regretted and went. The second son said he would go, but he didn't. Okay, we continue on. Verses 31 to 32, the Lord asked the chief priests and elders, which of the two did the will of his father? Now understand within this parable, the vineyard is the field or the work of God. So the Lord asked him the question, which did the will of his father? Their answer, the first. Then the Lord begins to apply the parable to them. He begins to apply the parable uh, to them. He says, assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. They were an example of the first son who said, no, we're not going to have the things of God. We don't want the things of God. What happens? Later, they regret of it, and they go, and they went, right? Now, in our culture today, maybe we don't fully grasp the um, impact of a statement like that the impact that statement would have on the hearers, okay? Not just the chief, you know, the tax collectors, the uh, chief uh, elders and so on, the chief men, the chief priests, not just them, those that were hearing. To hear a statement like that, you mean those guys, those tax collectors, those guys, harlots, prostitutes, the King James word whores, those are the ones that are coming? Yes, those are the ones. They're coming because they're listening. They're listening. That speaks to me, speaks to my heart, and it would have spoken to them. It would have speaking, spoken to them at this time. Verse 32, the Lord applies the answer of the second son to the religious leaders. Of course, John the Baptist had come to them. 
concerning the way of righteousness. They did not believe him, but these tax collectors and harlots had. They had believed. And the Lord said of the Pharisees, and, and well, we'll say, you'll get there, Matthew 23, 3, they say and they do not. That was what his statement concerning them were, the religious leaders. They say, oh, there's nothing wrong with what they say. Problem is they're not doing it. That's something that speaks to my heart, speaks to my heart. One thing to say it, one thing to get up here or anywhere else, speak it to my family. It's another thing to do it. It's good for us to always remember that. But, you know, still today, we find within ministry, and I know you do too, that so often it is those that are what we would consider maybe, or the, at least the culture would consider, the world would consider, at the very bottom you know, those are the ones, you know, the, the, the outcasts, the ones that aren't in the, the movers and the shakers of the world. Those are the ones that are looking for hope, though. That's where if the message is proclaimed, there will be a response. Why? Because they're looking for hope. They've looked other places. The world has spit them out, chewed them up, spit them out. And they're looking for hope and answers. And they find it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just note too, as we pass by, uh, the Lord mentions here in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. What exactly was that? What was the way of righteousness that John came in? You say, well, he was appointed of the Father. He was appointed to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Yes, he was. But what was he telling the people? Two things, repentance, and faith. Those two. That was the way of righteousness that John the Baptist was proclaiming to Israel as a nation. That was the way they were to come to God. They were to repent, and many did, we know. He came to the waters, they repented. And they were to have faith in the promised one who was to come. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's ministry was one, yes, of preparation, but the way of righteousness was going to come through repentance and faith. That has not changed, right? That has not changed. Today, for the man or woman who seeks a righteousness before God, it's going to come by repentance and faith. Today, we don't have faith in one to come. We have faith in one who has come. And we put our faith and we put our trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can tell you for myself, for years I believed in Jesus Christ. I would never have said there was nobody like Jesus, or like no one, you know, uh, I would have believed in Jesus. Put it that way. I would have told you I believed in him. But I had never repented. I had never bowed the knee. I had never, you know, given my part, my authority over to him and surrender to his authority. That's the part of repentance that people usually don't want. It's usually that part that they'll stumble over. It's you have another man to rule over, have somebody else to rule over me. Someone's going to tell me what to do with my life. No, I'm not having that. I'm good if it can help me in my life and my plans and how I want it to be. But don't bring somebody in that's going to tell me what to do. I'm not interested in that. And that so often is the stumbling block to anyone coming to Christ. John the Baptist said, and it has not changed, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Now, did God the Father stop trying to reach these religious leaders because they rejected John the Baptist? at the beginning, as we saw. No, he did not. We're going to see that as we continue to read. Let's read the next parable. We'll move along. 
Starting at verse 33, the Lord says, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now, this parable truly is addressing the whole question of authority. It really is. It's addressing that authority. And I want us just to consider the spiritual meaning behind the Lord's words. There's so much here. We have to get on to chapter 22, so we have to move along. So I'm just going to uh, put out some of the spiritual meaning. As we see it, this certain landowner, as portrayed here, is a reference to God himself. Okay, God, God, of course, is the land order. God is the is is the one who bore a nation through Abraham. Okay, God is the owner. The landowner uh, planted a vineyard, reference to Israel as a nation. Israel is called the vineyard of God in various places in Scripture. Perhaps uh, you know one of the areas that's best known is Isaiah chapter five. I just want to read a couple of verses there. Isaiah five verses one to two. They'll be familiar to many of you. It says, now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. We remember that Jerusalem is elevated, right? It's lifted up, it's high. He dug it and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now from Isaiah, this was written 800 years before, but it speaks of Israel as a nation. It speaks of Israel as that vineyard. There's also the mention of a hedge in here, and you, you might think, well, what's that all about? The hedge is believed to be a reference to the law of God. God made provision for his people, of course, and he, and, and, and part of the, uh, uh, part of the responsibility of the law was to protect the people. It speaks of protection. It, it speaks of separation. 
just to whet your appetite to look into that just a little bit more, let me read a verse from Galatians. Now, I'm going to read it in the NLT uh, just so we can see it. Uh, Galatians 3, 23 to 24, speaking of the law of God, thinking of it as a hedge. Hear this verse. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak. You could say that's a hedge. Until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. The hedge, a reference to the law. Okay. Now, the wine press, this is interesting. Not hard to see, of course. Why would you put a wine press in a vineyard? Well, you're expecting a harvest. That's why you anticipate harvest. You anticipate fruit. You anticipate you're going to be busy with fruit, right? God expected fruit from his people, Israel. He expected them to yield, you know, fruits of righteousness and their actions and, and, and so on and praise to him and worship to him and obviously an example to other nations. This is what he expected from Israel. Now, the tower speaks of protection. It speaks of provision, a place to watch for thieves, to watch for enemies, to watch for those coming in. I'm told that fire is the enemy of the vineyard. You watch for fires. You've got to get the fire out or you're going to lose your whole crop. But you see this tower, this idea of a tower. It speaks of God's all-watching eye over his people. The vine dressers, are, of course, are those that have the responsibility for the vine. They're the ones that have the responsibility as the chief priests and elders of the people. They were to watch over the vineyard of God. They had that responsibility. So in verses 34 to 35, within this parable, the first group is sent at vintage or harvest time, described as his servants. This is believed to be a reference to the prophets, the many prophets that God would send to his people wanting to correct, wanting to rebuke, looking for harvest, right? Uh, their messages of correction, need for repentance, a need to turn back to him. These servants came, they're looking for that crop, and the vine dressers beat one, it says, killed one, stoned another. That was the response here in the parable. Instead of being met with fellowship, holiness, love, they weren't met with any of that. None of those things, right? The vine dressers uh, killed them. Verse 36, we see other servants, more than this time, but again, the vine dresser did likewise to them. That's what they did. What do we see in verse 37? Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. They will respect my son. You know, uh, Deborah and I are blessed. We have, we have two boys and a girl, and I would never want to pick whether I would want to have a boy or a girl. They're both beautiful and wonderful, and it's fantastic. But there is no question there is something special between a mother and her daughter. I know there's something special between a mother and her father, but there's something special between a mother and her daughter. There's something very special between a father and a son. Something special there. And here, within the context of the parable, what's the parable saying? They will respect my son. This is my son. This is my heir. They'll respect him. And that is what the Lord Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders. And he was speaking of himself. 
He's speaking of himself. He was the son that was sent. No. God didn't end it with John the Baptist as a witness to these religious rulers, with a witness to the nation of Israel. It didn't end there. He continued. He sent his son. His son came. Now, I know his son came for the world. I understand that. But we're going to see. We're going to develop it. How it was so specifically to Israel at first, to the nation. Within the context of the parable, they will respect my son, in verse 38, what does this say? Is the vine dressers wanted the glory for themselves. This is the heir. They said, come, let us kill him. Let's seize his inheritance. We want it for ourselves. I'll tell you, there's no room for the glory of, you know, the glory that belongs to God belongs to God. There's no room for man to take that to himself at any time, at any time. It belongs to God and God alone, right? He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. This is the mistake that they're making at this time. Verse 39, they took him. They cast him out of the vineyard. Uh, they killed him. They wanted nothing to do with that. Where did the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he died outside the camp, wasn't he? He was put out, wasn't he? He was outside the gate, wasn't he? He died outside, didn't he? You don't see the religious rulers flocking to him in comfort. His comfort didn't come from them. Certainly didn't come from them. He was cast out, crucified outside of the, of the gate of the city. There's a verse in John talking about the chief priests and Pharisees. In John eleven forty eight. 48, it says this. They're speaking. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We want it for ourselves. We're not willing to surrender that authority. The very question they were asking him, by what authority? We have the authority here. They were saying, it's not God. We're in charge. This is what they were saying. So beginning in verse 40, the Lord asks them what they think will happen when the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to these vine dressers? The owner of the vineyard was standing right in front of them. He's standing right there. Imagine that. <laughs> Here's the Lord Jesus standing before them, saying, what do, you, what, do you think, what do you think we should do here? You know, What will the owner of the vineyard do when he comes? Interesting. Interesting. It's a question we ask the unsaved. The Lord is coming again. What do you think the Lord is going to do when he comes? He's looking for those that have faith in him, and he could come any time. What do you think he's going to do when he comes? Question we sometimes ask, of course. Verse 41, they pronounced their own judgment in their answer. They said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Oh, there should have been fruit, they're saying. There should have been fruit. And oh, it's only right that it be taken away from those that are caring for it. Why? Because they're failing miserably. There's no fruit. They're actually pronouncing their own uh, judgment. We read in Luke 21, 24, this verse will be familiar to many of you. And they, speaking of Israel as a nation, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this was what was coming, of course. It was coming. It was coming for Israel. Today in our church age, as we know at the day of grace, the age of grace, the time that we live in, Israel is not at the forefront. Now, God hasn't, you know, put Israel aside forever, but they are aside right now. Individually, 
Of course, they can come and be part of the church. Nationally, they're set aside. Nationally, though, they will have their time. Nationally, they will have their time in the future. Nationally, they will look at the one whom they've pierced. And they will embrace them and accept them as their Messiah. But not before there's much more bloodshed. Not before there's much more bloodshed. The history of the Jews is, is, is one interesting study. And of course, the scholars believe that the Lord is looking forward and thinking of a time when that was, when the vineyard is going to be surrendered. Uh, we know what happened in 70 AD under Titus. When it came in and everything was destroyed. Everything was just wiped out. Verses 42 to 44, interesting verses here. The Lord applies Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, saying, Have you ever read in the scriptures? Haven't you read it? Don't you know it? What's interesting is there's portions of Psalm 18, Psalm 118, that was read at Passover. So there was portions of that psalm that would be read. Have you ever read? Well, they're reading part of it right then. It's Passover. They're reading part of it. Not only that, of course, you look a little further back in verse 26 of Psalm 18. What were they saying? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From Psalm 118. And they were applying it. So the Lord is saying to the religious leaders, the ones who had, you know, great portions of Scripture memorized, the ones who should have been on top of everything and recognized it, he's saying to them, have you ever read? <laughs> Don't you read? Don't you understand? Don't you understand what, what, what's happening here? Psalm 118, 22 to 23 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone rejected by the builders, of course, is the person of Christ. They had no place in their plans for him. They did not want him as part of their building plans. They had, they had no room. Now, we know today, especially as his church, we know that the Lord died for sin. He was buried and he rose again. We also know the preeminence that God the Father gives his son. The preeminence that God the Father gives his son in all things. I'll tell you, when I read and I see and I understand some small bit of the glory that God the Father gives his son, it tells me I better be giving him glory in my life, how I conduct myself, how I live, how I look at his word, how I read his word, and my appreciation and my praise and my worship. <laughs> If God the Father thinks out of his son, the one who was killed, the one who was set aside for me, if God the Father does that, what am I doing? I think of Philippians 2.9, many of you could quote this. It says, God also has highly exalted him, lifted him up to places. Right? Now you say, well, he was already there. He's God. That's right. He was God. But boy, did he prove it. When he came to this world, did he show it by how he lived and how he served the Father? He's given him a name which is above every name. Peter said in preaching his sermon, Acts 4, this is early in the church, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Here he is. This is the one. Remember you killed him? Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. He's the chief cornerstone. You rejected him. Uh, you killed him. 
Verse 43, the Lord pronounces the judgment on the nation of Israel. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Um, we want to we want to see here you know in answer to the the parable that this was the this was the right thing to do israel as a nation had just said that that's what they should should do they should give it to a nation that would bear the fruits of it but it's also been pointed out that in regards to this stone and this is an interesting thought you can go home and look at it we don't have time to to look at it too much now but when you read the verse, read verse 44, look at it again. It says, whoever falls on this stone. In order for them to fall on the stone, the stone has to be in the ground. Okay, the stone has to be here in order for them to fall on the stone. So it's, you know, if you, if you can imagine the stone is there and you kind of just trip on it or you fall on it, right, in terms of your understanding, in terms of recognizing and understanding the purpose of the stone, Okay, uh, what, what does it say? Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But that stands in contrast to the next phrase. It says, but on whomever it falls. Now the stone is no longer on the ground. Now the stone is in the air. Okay, so we see the difference. And the scholars have taken from this that it's, that it's quite possible we are seeing the two advents of the Lord here. Because we're seeing his first coming, which is what we see depicted before us here. The Lord himself is here on earth. They're tripping over him. There's people tripping over him. The religious leaders are tripping over him. And they're broken. That's like this is going to be it for them. It's going to be it for the nation of Israel. Okay. It's going to be handed over to others. And they're broken. But there's a coming time when that very same stone in the person of Christ is coming from heaven. And when that very same stone, speaking of the person of Christ, comes from heaven, he's coming in judgment. And when he comes in judgment, He's going to judge, and as it says, whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Speaks of that return, if you will, of the chief corner stone. There's a reason why in 1 Corinthians 3.11 it says that no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He, he, he's the one who's laid the foundation by his life, the giving of his life, his righteousness for us. We build our lives on that. As Christians, we build our lives on that. He is the chief cornerstone. We are the individual stones built into this whole spiritual organism called the church. There's a local representation here at Readview. There's another one at Downtown Outreach Bible Chapel. There's another one out at, at Bridalwood Bible Chapel. Okay? Local, and, and others, of course, too. Local representations of the church universal. But each one of us are a stone. He's the chief cornerstone. He's also the foundation we build our lives upon. We are built into this spiritual organism called the church. And all of us being built into it have responsibilities. In verses 45 to 46, we need not wonder what the religious chief priests and Pharisees thought. Uh, they heard the Lord's parables. They perceived he was speaking to them. They wanted them dead right then and there, but they feared the multitudes. They should have feared God, not the multitudes. Okay, that's always good for us to remember. Don't fear man, fear God, not man. We always need to fear God more than we fear man. Did God the Father stop trying to reach the, reach the religious leaders even when they rejected his son? No, I don't think so. 
You read in Acts 1.8, the risen Lord Jesus, what did he say? He said to his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to have power to do the service that I've called you to. And he says, you're going to be witness to me, but oh, start in Jerusalem. Make sure you start in Jerusalem when you go out to witness in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Quite profound. Let's read our next parable, and then we'll finish with that. Chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out another, uh, other servants and saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their way one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, you may disagree with me on this, but this is, this is, in my opinion, it's not a picture of the marriage supper or the feast of the Lamb here that we're looking at. It's specific to Israel. It's specific to Israel. The focal point is Israel, their preparedness for the Messiah. It is a kingdom of heaven. That's in view for Israel, the bride for the son that should be found in them that was not found. These are the, some of the things uh, that we see here. The certain king pictures God the Father who arranged this marriage. Of course, the son pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Was Israel invited to the wedding? Absolutely, they were invited. They should have known. They should have recognized the time of their visitation. And uh, they could be seen pictured in the uh, ministry of, of John the Baptist, okay, as he went out and invited the nation. They were not willing to come. In verse 4, there are other servants sent out. It, it speaks of preparations by this certain king. Uh, the planning, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared, prepared my dinner, my oxen, fat, a calf are killed. All things are ready. Here it is. Like, send them out again. Tell them again. All things are ready. This is the time. What happened? Verse 5. They made light of it. They went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his own business. We could talk about responsibilities and, and how they can draw us away and all sorts of things you see in here. Too busy for the certain king. Too busy with their own plans. Too busy with their wealth and whatever else it would be. Just no time for the things of God. Uh, we want to make sure that we are never too busy when it comes. You know, when God says all things are ready, I want you to come now. You know, I've got a plan for you. I want you to come now. Will you come? If you're not saved and he says come, make sure you come when he calls you. Don't stand at the back and wonder about it. Come. Get saved. Okay? Trust Christ. 
you're a Christian and he says, come, come, come to him, right? Whenever he wants us to come, whenever, whatever it is he wants to do, come and do it. Without question, right? This is the idea. We can take a couple, a couple of practical things from this. But in verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Some have suggested what we see here is we have possibly picturing the book of Acts. We know that it wasn't until Acts 10 before the gospel started going to the Gentiles. Up until that time, it was within the nation of Israel, and many, many scholars see within this a, a, a picture of that, how, yes, John the Baptist went first, and it was wonderful, but then after, of course, uh, they, they continued to go to Israel as a nation. Not only did they go to Israel as a nation at that time, they were also going now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had come. The Holy Spirit was out there convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, John 16. So the power of the Holy Spirit was there in the nation of Israel too in those early chapters of Acts. They should have understood. They should have seen, right? This is what, this is what the Lord is preaching uh, to them. Verses 7 to 10, once the king hears of this, he's furious. This time he doesn't send out more servants though. Not more servants this time. He sends out his armies. He destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Now the scholars are suggesting that the armies that God sent is Titus in 70 AD. That this was it. This was it for them as a nation. Right? At this time. Okay? And um, remembering back in, well, you're not, the, you're not there yet. I can't say back. It's ahead. <laughs> Matthew 24, Lord is going to be saying, do you not see all of these things talking to his disciples? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one. Not one. Quite, quite the judgment to come. Same rulers that allowed John the Baptist to be killed asked to kill Jesus and killed Stephen. It's interesting when you trace that through and you see that. You see all that, that picture that exists there. Somebody has suggested that within John the Baptist and the disciples, they were sent by God the Father. God the Son, of course, sent himself. He was there. God the Holy Spirit was represented within the ministry of Acts. They rejected the full trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rejected all three. And denying Christ and the identity of of Christ. Verses 8 to, 8 to 10, the invitation changes. The first ones invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. Certain king says, go into the, uh, certain father says, go into the highways, gather together all those who you found, both bad and good. Invite them all. Invite them all. Many are called. Invite them all to come. Okay. Verses 11 to 13 is very personal. Okay. Now it's a personal personal in nature, no longer national. We see this. It says, however, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And this, this personal nature here is seen today. Every, every man and woman having, having to decide personally. We don't decide as a nation. We decide individually, regardless of nationality, culture, language, tribe, skin color. It doesn't matter. We, de we, we decide for Christ. It's personal. It's individual, right? And this is speaking of this very thing. The king calls a man friend. 
King has his servants, however, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The man is speechless about this. He says absolutely nothing. Perhaps it'll help our understanding to realize something, though. That at every wedding celebration such as this, the garment to wear was provided. If you didn't have one, you would be provided with one. All you had to do was avail yourself of the garment. And you would have a garment to be able to sit in the feast. The man is speechless, I'm going to suggest to you, because he never availed himself of the garment that was possible for him to have. And this speaks to me so strongly of those who would like to argue and fight against God and against Jesus Christ to suggest for a minute that they should be there in their own righteousness or whatever it would be when they have never availed themselves of the, of the proper garment of righteousness which Jesus Christ himself can provide for you. And that's what it speaks to me of. That these individuals have not come to him because he provides the righteousness that we need. He provides the right to be there. It's nothing in and of ourselves. It's nothing we have done. We can't add one thing to it. If you're adding to it somehow in your own mind and your own thinking, there's two possibilities. Number one, you're not saved at all. Number two, you don't understand it. Because there's nothing we can add. Nothing. Christ has done it all. And here within the context of what we're reading, we see them, they're put out. Right? This is the idea that they're, they're, they're put out. God had made the provision. God had made the provision for the nation of Israel as well. And now towards the end of this parable, uh, the Lord Jesus, I believe, is teaching that it's going to come down to individual responsibility. And listen, you better, you better make sure that you have a wedding garment on. There's many called. Yes, there are. There's only a few chosen. Why are they chosen? They're chosen on the, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. They're chosen on the basis that they avail themselves of the garment that was provided. So we need to avail ourselves of what God has provided for us. Tell you something else, though. There are thousands of people in this city that don't know about the garment provided. Thousands. Thousands. You work with them. You take the bus with them. You're at the doctor's office with them. Okay? You go to school with them. Some of them are in your family. And they have no idea that God has provided the garment, that God has provided a way that we can stand before him and we can be here in the kingdom of heaven. Praise God for his plan of salvation, right? Praise God. Our, our, our time is gone. Our time is gone. And we have to end there. I just want to say this. Many have suggested the weeping we see here is, is speaking of hell over sorrow and pain. Many see the gnashing of teeth, speaking of distress, speaking of anger, speaking of all these things, outer darkness. What a contrast to the God who is light. What a contrast to the God who is described in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we've heard from him, declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. None. This is our God. Why would you not want to come to him? I pray that everyone here this morning can say with fullness of assurance that they know Christ, that they know Christ as their Savior. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word, the teaching your word. Really, Father, what we've looked at this morning is just a skeleton of these verses. There's so much more here. But Father, we see your love and your 
love towards the nation of Israel, we see progressively how you continue to send them witness even when they rejected John the Baptist, even when they rejected your son, even when they killed your son. You still sent your representatives to them. Start in Jerusalem, the Lord said. Make sure you tell my people. Make sure they know. Help us as, as yours today, as your church, as your bride. Help us to remember that you're still calling us to go, saying, make sure they know. Make sure they know about me. Make sure they know about the provision they have in me. Father, bless this time we've had this morning, Father. We ask it in our Savior's name. Amen.